All right, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Before we get started, um, I have an announcement I'm supposed to make. Uh, Precious Lucky is here. Many of you have given him a ride this summer. He's here to thank you for giving him a ride. And my understanding is from Pastor Walter's text last night that you'd like to get a picture with those who have given you a ride, correct? Yes. So after Bible study, those who have given him a ride, if you could meet over with him, he'd like to get a picture with all of you. Um, so that'll happen after Bible study. Let us open in prayer and we'll dive into what we have for the day. Oh Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the forgiveness of all our sins and its centrality here to Lord's Prayer. Bless us now as we study this. In your Son's holy name we pray. Amen. We are now on the fifth petition. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. We ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishments. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. There's a lot packed into that. Um, and we're going to look at it. Mostly we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18. That'll kind of be the bulk of our study. We'll get there here in a moment. Because it's such a key text for understanding everything that we confess about this fifth petition and our understanding of it from the small catechism. Um, it is the cornerstone of the Lord's Prayer. If you want, it's the hinge on which everything else turns. It's the centerpiece of the whole thing. Because, as Luther says here, apart from the forgiveness of sins, you don't receive anything. If you don't have the forgiveness of your sins in Christ Jesus, then when you pray, you're not getting any of the other things you ask for. So apart from this, you have nothing. In fact, apart from Christ's intercession, forgiveness, and grace, your prayers wouldn't even be heard. Right? It's because of Jesus that our prayers are actually heard before the Father. Not in the sense that God doesn't hear them like, what? What did you say? But in the sense that he doesn't actually receive them. Like, apart from Christ's intercession, our prayers aren't heard. It's because we're covered in Christ's righteousness that we go before the throne of the Father. So everything we pray before this, everything we pray after it, is built on this petition. So let's look at our problem and the solution. And then we'll get into Matthew 18 and spend, spend quite a while on that. So our sins are debt that we can never hope to repay. In fact, as we'll see in the parable, you could have many lifetimes of working and you'd never come close, never come anywhere close to making a dent in what you owe. That's one of the points, one of the points of Jesus' parable that we'll see in a moment. It doesn't matter what you did, you never, you never paid off. We're not worthy. We don't deserve anything we pray for. Right? Luther says we're neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. That's why the Christian can't ever go in prayer in arrogance. We can't ever be haughty and think, well, God better give this to me. He owes me. Nope. What he owes you, what you deserve, is his wrath. 
that's what you've earned. Whenever people say things like, that's not fair in regard to something God does, my general response is, you're lucky God's not fair, because if he was, if it was all about just fairness, then you're in trouble. But thanks be to God, he also does things through his grace and mercy for us. We need this petition for the consolation and comfort of our conscience, so that as we pray this daily, we're confessing our sins and receiving the forgiveness of our sins, which helps us as we pray for all of these other things. It's for comfort and consolation. First uh, John 1, 8 and following tells us, right? John says, if we say we have no sin, how's that going to go? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? So to think that we've reached a point, we've plateaued, and we don't need the forgiveness of sins. And there are Christian groups that say that, or at least come close to that. I had my college president said before all of us at chapel one day that he does sin once in a great while, but you would never know it because he doesn't sin outwardly anymore. It's all just some internal sins he commits once in a great while. And I was kind of blown away by that. But there are groups that teach that. Like that like that's not un, as uncommon as you think. There are groups that teach that you don't even have the sinful nature to battle against anymore. And if you ask them, if you say, well, why do you sin? They would say something like, I've been in these conversations, so I know this for a fact. They'll say things like, well, it's just old bad habits and things like that that I commit. It's not because I have sin nature. I'm like, why would you desire to do that bad habits if you had no sin nature? And then they stare at me blankly and change the subject. But I mean, you can't, you can't escape it. If you're a Christian and you've been on this earth for any amount of time, you know, you know you struggle with sin. You know you still sin. Uh, other, if you think you haven't sinned, you're just deceiving yourself. And so Luther says, this petition also breaks our pride and keeps us humble. We're constantly, every time we pray it, reminding ourselves that we indeed need the forgiveness of sins. That we can't live apart from it. That we cannot have life apart from it. So Luther says, let no one thinks as long as he lives here, he can reach such a position that he will not need such forgiveness. In short, if God does not forgive without stopping, we are lost. Right? So our view as Lutherans is that our sin nature, even after baptism, is still there. Not that it's the dominant feature of our life. Paul makes that clear in Romans 6. But that there is a war raging within us against the new man and the old Adam. And that we are going to sin. I love the way John Gerhard puts this. He says, even in your very best good work you've ever done, it's never been 100% perfectly pure. But every sin you've ever committed is 100% perfectly evil and sinful. Right? So even the good works you've done are tainted by sin, but they're covered by the blood of Christ. And so God can see them as good. So even our good works have to be covered by the blood of Jesus because even those aren't done perfectly. They're still tainted by sin. They still need, even them, we need forgiveness for our very sin nature that that makes them less than perfect in pure good works. I gave you a couple handouts. 
that I want to talk about now before we move, move on. And they're similar. This is something like this really should have been in your hymnal. It's in the pastoral care companion. Um, it's also, if you have the treasury of daily prayer, it's all the way in the very back, something just like this. This is from Dr. Kenneth Corby um, for self-examination and reflection. And what it, the whole purpose of this so-called confessional mirror is this is how people would prepare for private confession. Because it's, it's a deep dive in, into seeing maybe where you have blind spots where you haven't realized you've sinned. So that's the longer one. We're not going to go through it. It's, it's there for your, you can take it home and look at it. And then I have a shorter one, which is from Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. He took those and kind of just condensed it down to one question per commandment, um, <clears throat> which is another thing you can do. What am I afraid of, first commandment? How are my prayers? What is my attitude towards worship? What is my attitude towards authority? Am I angry? Am I chaste? Am I greedy? Am I lazy? Am I bitter? Am I content? By the way, for the sixth commandment, chastity is still the best translation because chastity is not just about sexual purity. Chastity is about holiness and purity in all areas of life. This is the way our living fathers taught that, that it wasn't just about one particular sin, but the sixth commandment covered all kinds of things. Um, so what are these helpful for? Well, if you look on the back, um, there, there's a thing by the, called the Examine by Ignatius of Loyola, which is, <laughs> if you know anything about him, it's rather ironic, because does anyone know anything about him? He wasn't very fond of Lutherans. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> like, not even a little bit. However, right, uh, a broken clock, twice a day, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, um, but I've adapted it. I've changed some of the wording. But it is helpful. It's something you can do at night. You, the exam is intended to do at night before you go to bed. It's a way to, as Dr. Kleining talks about in Grace Upon Grace, it's a way to take out the trash every night before you go to bed. Um, so you begin in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. To invoke God's presence, thank him for who he is and all that he's, gifts he's given to you today. So you have a prayer of gratefulness. You invite God to help you really think about your day. And then you kind of walk through your day and you think, in what ways uh, was I walking with God? In what ways was I sinning? And then you repent of your sins. The thing is, we can harden our conscience and not realize when we're sinning. And so if we're not constantly kind of, and this isn't like, the extreme of this is like a really unhealthy navel gazing where you do this like all the time nonstop and that's all you ever do. That's not good or healthy. The Bible does say we should examine ourselves. That's why Lutherans have come up with things like confessional mirrors of various lengths for, for 500 years. There is a helpful part to it. It shouldn't be all you do. It shouldn't even be the bulk of your time. But before you go to bed, right, if you want to think about, okay, well, let me think about my day. Oh, yeah, I am. Uh, I snapped at my kids and I didn't even realize I did it in the moment. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even feel bad for it. And now you look back over your day and you're like, man, I blew it. I sinned, I sinned against them. I need to repent of that. Um, so then you repent of it. And you ask God for the strength to mend your ways and help in the day to come. Um, those are just some really practical tools to help you as you pray, forgive us our trespasses so that we're not just praying it unthinkingly um, right, Luther says that there's three parts of confession. Right, this is his exhortation to confession, uh, which you can find like at bookofconcord.org. It's not very long, but there's, there's three aspects of confession. First, 
like we do in the Lord's Prayer, we confess our sins to God, generally. Um, the sins that weigh on us, we can confess to the pastor in private confession absolution. And then we confess our sins one to another as we sin against each other. Um, and forgive one another for the sins we've done to each other. And things like the examine, things like these confessional mirrors can help us with all three of those. They can help us with sins we need to confess to God, sins we need to confess to the pastor because we realize, oh, I hadn't really thought about that, but man, I can't believe I did this sin and it's really weighing on me. It's really burning my conscience. I'd like to be free of this. And then third, we may realize at the end of the day, man, I sinned against my children, my spouse, my neighbor in this way. I need to go and ask for forgiveness. Those are all good things um, as, as we seek to live in the forgiveness of sins and not just, um, again, I think Kleinig's imagery in Grace Upon Grace of taking out the trash every day is very helpful. Right? Because if you did that in your house, you just let the trash pile up, what's going to happen? Especially in this heat. <laughs> not going to be very fun to live in. It's going to be pretty gross. Um, you have to take the trash out. And we have to do that, spiritually speaking, too, as we confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Right? Luther warned us, um, he warned us when we looked at the previous petitions about, we talked about how the Lord's Prayer is one of the most abused prayers because people don't actually pay attention to what they're praying for. Um, it's a really dangerous thing when you're talking about the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> Not really, yeah, forgive me my sins. You know, without really thinking that you've actually committed any sins or that you actually need forgiveness. Um, to just kind of mouth it, it isn't going, uh, isn't, isn't great. Um, and Luther says we need this, we need to do this to confess our sins so we can have a joyful and confident conscience. So that our conscience can know that indeed it's, all the sins have been forgiven in Christ. It can marvel in that. It can joyfully go before the Lord um, every day, even when it sins, because it knows it's dealing with its sin. We're not trying to hide anything from God. We're not trying to trick him as if we could, but we're confessing our sins and receiving forgiveness. Any questions on any of that before we move on to this parable in Matthew 18? All right, let's look at Matthew 18. The parable of the unforgiving servants. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Where does Jesus get those numbers? Does anyone know? They're not just random. There's nothing random in the Bible. Does anyone remember? Pop quiz, guys. <laughs> You're being graded. <laughs> Goes all the way back to Lamech. And Lamech expressing how he's going to give his vengeance sevenfolds. And so Jesus, and again, it's, it's the point isn't whether you do 77 times or 70 times 7, depending on uh, uh, how you translate that there. The point isn't, well, I got to the 77th time. Now I don't have to forgive him. <laughs> uh, the reason Peter says seven times is because... Uh, a lot of the teachers of the law around him would say, like, seven times is pretty extreme. Like, if you do that, you're like, you're a really good person. Pat yourself on the back. You did it seven times. Jesus is saying, quit counting. Stop counting how many times you've forgiven the person. Knock it off. Because uh, my forgiveness is far greater than 
77 times, which is now the point of the parable. Um, we can say much more on how Jesus is drawing from Lamech there, but that's not the point we want to make. Okay. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Um, you all use talents every day, right? So you're real, real familiar with conversion rates on this, right? Um, how, how much does anyone know? What's 10,000 talents? What's that equivalent to? You probably have a footnote that helps you out there a little bit. A talent... 20 years wages. So let's put this in more modern terms. One servant owed billions upon billions of dollars. That's what he owes. Billions and billions. And he's a day laborer. He's making minimum wage. Okay, that's the imagery here. He's, he owes billions. How he got in that debt is not addressed. It doesn't matter. The point is, he owes an amount that no matter how many lifetimes he lives, it's never going to be paid off. He's not even, he can't even pay the interest. He's done before he starts. That's the point of this number. It's not for us to try to, like, well, how did someone working that get, well, I mean, if you look around, people get into a lot of debt really fast. Maybe not that much, but be quite a bit. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children all that he had in payment to be made. So he's going to become a slave. He's going to go into slavery. He can't pay it off. That's it for him. The master says, time's up. Pay. This part's fascinating. Verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. <laughs> Sure. Do you think the master thought for a moment? Yeah, if I'm patient with this guy, I'll get all my money back. He knows better. There's no chance of this ever happening. The master knows that. Yet, out of pity for him, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It's all gone. He's debt free. He owes nothing. Now, how should that make that man feel? If you had just been forgiven billions upon billions of dollars of debt, and you got out of slavery, and now you're debt-free, how does that make you feel? Grateful? Joyful? Not for this guy. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. A denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So 100 days wages. So let's put it in these terms. He owed him a few thousand bucks compared to the billions upon billions of dollars he owes. So is that feasible that this guy could eventually pay him back? Yeah, it's feasible. It could actually happen. But he grabs him by the neck and says, pay me what you owe. He's just been forgiven all his debt. Does he even need this money? No, he's just been let, let off completely. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Word for word, same thing he said to the master. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Right? They'd go and say, hey, remember that guy? You just forgave like billions and billions of dollars. He just threw one of our fellow servants in over a couple thousand dollars. Can you believe this? This is unthinkable. How could he do this? And the master said, no big deal. We'll just ignore it. Nope. This master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That is a rough ending. Like if you want some pointed law for the day, Jesus says, if you don't forgive, that's what's going to happen to you. Now, there's two parts to this, right? The first part is we are, we are the servant who owes billions upon billions of dollars. And in Christ Jesus, that debt's gone. Forgive it. We're completely free. Our debt was paid for on the cross. Jesus not only paid for the debt, but he, he paid for the punishments that was owed to that debt. He paid for it all. It's all gone. We're completely 100% free. We owe nothing. Both in the Lord's Prayer, Luther's explanation of the fifth petition, and various places, Jesus says, if you don't forgive others like I've forgiven you, then you're not forgiven. What does this cause some to think? How could you understand that incorrectly? Yeah, that's kind of quid pro quo, right? Like, uh, God will forgive me if I forgive other people. And that's how a lot of people understand this. My goal is to show you that's, that's not what it's saying, but it does, at very least, emphasize the importance, the utter importance of forgiving others. But let's, let's see what Jesus is actually saying about this. So, if someone's forgiven... And we're forgiven in Christ. We believe that we're actually forgiven. And then someone sins against us, and we look at them and we say, I refuse to forgive you. I demand my pound of flesh. Pay me what you owe. Does that uh, show that we actually believe that we're forgiven in Christ? It shows that we don't really believe what we said about Jesus forgiving us. That's Jesus' point throughout. His point isn't, if you forgive someone, God has to forgive you. His point is, is that if you are forgiven, the forgiveness of God flows from you through you to others. And we're going to talk about how hard that is in just a minute. But that's Jesus' point. That when we receive the forgiveness of sins, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that if we believe that, then when others sin against us, we realize there's a drop in the bucket compared to what we did against God's. We realize their debt against us is very minuscule. It's nothing compared to what we owed God's. That's Jesus' point here. So, flip to the back side. We're going to uh, lean more heavily into this, hear what Luther says, because Luther picks this up and runs with it, using this parable. This is a large catechism on this petition. <clears throat> If therefore you do not forgive, then do not think that God forgives you. But if you forgive, you have this comfort and assurance that you are forgiven in heaven. This is not because of your forgiving. For God forgives freely and without condition, out of pure grace, as he has so promised as the gospel teaches. 
But God says this in order that he may establish forgiveness as our confirmation and assurance as a sign alongside of the promise. So here Luther is saying our forgiveness of others is fruit, it's evidence that we've received the forgiveness of Christ. That's what he's saying there. All right. So we must heartily forgive those who have sinned against us. So that sounds nice abstractly. Sure. We should forgive others who have sinned against us. All right. What about the person who's really sinned horrifically against you? What if they've committed really awful sins against you? Do you have to forgive them? Yes. Yes. His friend, her daughter was murdered, and she has come to our grief share that she can't forgive him. What do you say to her? Well, we're going we're gonna to get there in just a second. Is it easy to forgive someone when something horrible has been done to you? Is it going to be like automatic? Are you going to wake up and be like, oh, it's easy. I just forgive them. It's over. Um, a story is told of a woman who, who, has, who is greatly abused by her mother. She goes to her pastor and the pastor says, you need to forgive. You need to let this go. And she says, I don't want to. And he says, do you want to want to? She says, no. Do you want to want to want to? No. On and on it goes. Do you want to want to want to want to want to? And she finally says, yes. And the pastor says, the Lord can deal with that. He can start from there. We want, we live, right? I get upset if my internet's not quite as fast as it should be, right? We get upset if we have to wait like in line longer than we should. We are a very fast-paced culture. We think everything should be fast, as fast-paced as we are. The problem with that is life is not like that. Relationships are not like that. Forgiveness is not like that among people. It may take you a long time to forgive someone. You may struggle. You may have to repent of your, your struggle to forgive. You may have to ask the Lord, plead with the Lord to help you to actually forgive. And we're going to look at what that forgiveness actually looks like in a moment. But it's not always going to be like automatic. It's not always going to be days, weeks. It could take months, years. Right? I would say the difference is the Christian is striving to get there even when their sinful flesh is saying, I can't do it. Like, and there, there's some kind of battle um, that, that we're having with that. Um, we will show our forgiving spirit by doing good to those who have sinned against us. Let me ask you related to this, and then, then I want to talk a little bit more about this because I think it's an important topic that comes up. Are you commanded to forgive and forget? No. Well, let's take a show of hands because there's I heard multiple answers. How many of you think we're commanded to forgive and forget? Anyone? Does anyone? That's good. The only article I've ever rejected when I was editor of Steadfast Lutherans was a pastor who wrote that you were commanded to forgive and forget. And I said, you can't put that burden on people because it's impossible. When it says that, for example, when it says that God is, uh, forgives and forgets, that he forgets your sins, does that mean that God says, oh, I didn't remember they actually did that. Is that what that means when it says God forgets your sin? Like it's just, oh, I didn't know they did that. What does it mean when God forgets your sins? He doesn't do what? He doesn't 
Yeah, he's not holding against you. Right? It went against Christ. It's not held against you. So the problem with forgive and forget is the example given of, of someone's uh, loved one being murdered. Can you ever forget that that person murdered your loved one? No, it's impossible. Impossible. You, you'll never forget that. That's not something you can just forget. What they're trying to say when people use that language, but usually they misunderstand it, is that the biblical picture of forgiving is you're letting go your demand for retribution, your demand for a pound of flesh. If you want to read a great play about this, read Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, right? Portia gives a beautiful speech about the mercy that drops down from heaven, right? Um, that's, that's where Shylock really does want an actual pound of flesh. Yes? Right, and Paul will quote that and say, uh, by doing good to them, we keep burning coals of fire upon their heads. Um, we put it in the Lord's hands, and we, we trust him with it, but we, we don't try to get back. We don't take vengeance. This is hard because uh, a, lot of, a lot of movies are premised around <laughs> the idea that the, the hero of the movie is taking vengeance into their own hands. Now, does that mean, so if someone, someone murders my loved one or does something horrific to someone in my family, that then the Christian thing is not to press charges. No, it's a confusion of kingdoms, right? Like you can forgive someone and they may still have, they may still have to go to death row. You can forgive, they can be forgiven in the church. And they may still have to pay the earthly consequences for their, their sin. So they're two separate things. But you can forgive them. And here's the truth, too, and many of you know this. Are there times when you have to forgive someone for the thing they've done against you again and again and again and again? Why? Because your sinful flesh remembers that you get mad about it again. You get angry about it again. You want to make them accountable all over again. And maybe it's been, because this is the way grief and pain and anger work, Maybe it's been six months, a year since you even really felt those feelings, but now since something happened and you're reminded and those feelings come rushing back and you want them to pay. And you have to repent all over again and that's okay too. That's just living in the fallen human sinful flesh. Yes? Um, great read if you're really into history at all too. Um, book called Mission of Nuremberg. Uh, it's the story of Henry, Pastor Henry Garrett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the chaplain assigned to the Nuremberg trials in Germany. And his job to minister to these German war criminals. And it really plays into his struggle with do I offer for the solution to these guys who horrific acts and, and finally works through that um, with himself and as he talks to and works with the, the criminals that he was assigned to. Just fascinating read. Um, and, and interesting from the from the mindset of a pastor, you know, how do they deal with that issue? Yeah, and there, um, that's a great recommendation. There's also, um, if you've ever read Walter A. Meyer's uh, biography, which is a really great read, it's a really fun read. Um, he was someone who went over to Germany after the war too and helped with food and clothing. And people, there are a lot of people who went, like Lutherans were doing that and sending stuff over, who really struggled with, why are you doing this? Why would you go help them? Right? Um, there's, you know, there's a new movie out that's dealing with the, the, the atomic bomb um, and some of the fallout from that and the guilt that some of the scientists felt about that. 
um, and others involved in that project, um, and trying to come to grips with themselves what they had done. Um, war is horrific on like a million different levels. One of the horrific things it does is those who participate in it, um, it scars them morally. In fact, one article says rather than post-traumatic stress disorder, oftentimes what they have is a, a post-moral stress disorder. They have sins that need to be repented of and forgiven on both sides. So they need chaplains. They need people that go to them and say, yeah, what you did in that war was really wicked and horrific. Uh, you need forgiveness of sins. And they need someone who can bring it to them and actually delight to bring it to them and wants to see them forgiven. Um, but normally the response is, right, uh, Hitler, and the Not Hitler and the Nazis, that's who hell was made for. Why would you want to help them? Why would you want to do anything for those guys? Um, but if we understand the parable of Jesus, then we see that forgiveness, forgiveness we receive means we want everyone to be forgiven, even if they've done horrible, awful things. All sins, no matter great or small, are going to be the same way I've got. So the sin of someone murdering somebody really is no different than your sin of driving down the road and going five miles over the people. Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. So in the sense that on Judgment Day, all, do all sins equally damn us? Yes. But, um, I mean, murdering someone is worse than breaking the speed limit because of the consequences of it, right? So in one sense, murder is, is worse, and there's sins that are worse. Romans 1 lays out some of these things, right? Um, but before God, all sins equally damn. And that's, that was Luther's big point. Um, you see this, too, in our confession when it distinguishes between some things, um, or in our Lutheran Church Fathers, that there is sometimes a difference in um, the gravity of the sin or the consequences of the sin on ourselves and others, but um, all sins are equally damnable. They all, apart from Christ, they all take us to hell. Yes? Sometimes what's been helpful for me in the past is just, I guess, the law, because I know I'm supposed to do something, but there's nothing in me that wants to forgive. There's nothing in me, no feelings, no, that wants to forgive somebody, but I know I'm supposed to. So if I, I have to like make myself say, you know, I forgive them and pray, try to pray for them. And, and sometimes the act of just doing that over time will bring my feelings around. Yeah, like when we act loving towards others. I mean, one of the best things, if you're having trouble forgiving someone or dealing with someone, the first thing you can do is pray for them. Because when you pray for them, it's hard to pray for someone and, like, wish evil upon them, right? Or wish... Like, let's see what's actually going on for us. <laughs> Marty, Marty's checking it out, so we'll. Uh... Well, we'll keep going until someone tells us to leave. Um, I, I think this is tricky though because I, I think what often happens too is. Christians feel guilty when they're struggling to forgive someone for something really horrific. 
Because we know that we're to forgive, and yet we also know that it's, it's not, again, abstractly, yeah, it's really easy just to say forgive, let go, don't demand your pound of flesh, don't hold it against them. Also, maybe one other thing with this, and then um, someone had a question over here, but sometimes, too, I'm going to use a really extreme example just to show how silly the thinking is. A couple maybe extreme examples. Would you put, if someone was a convicted pedophile and they came out and they came to church, thanks be to God, and they're forgiven, they've confessed their sins, do you put them in charge of youth ministry? No, you, you wouldn't. You know, you wouldn't put the person, um, you wouldn't put the person who uh, had uh, stolen, like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars from someone, repented. You don't then make them the church treasurer because you're like, well, forgive and forget. Like, we don't do that because we know better. We know that that's not, first of all, putting that person in a, a situation where you're going to be more tempted is just dumb. It's not helpful to them. You're not helping them in any way. You're putting them in a bad position to begin with. Um, so we don't want to throw around these things like forgive and forget or act as if I'll, I'll never, if I ever think about it, I'm an evil person because I thought, I thought about this. No, you're going to struggle with forgiving some people. You may have to forgive them a thousand times, maybe more, right? Um, especially when it's been a sin against you or a family member or something that's so great. It's not just, I just woke up and now I just forgave them and now I'm done with it. It's not how life works. I think most of you have probably experienced enough things that you know that. You know that it's not, it doesn't just get over it. You don't just move on. Um, and you may have to do that again and again and again. Um, any questions I saw? Well, Pastor, this whole discussion today also reminds me of the unspoken amount of guilt that is that is uh, that comes upon um, people who go through abortions. You don't talk, you know, you don't hear about that. The pro-choice kind of group ignores that. So I'm so grateful for an organization like Mosaic that works with the gospel. And uh, people commit, learn, you know, they, they talk about the gospel as well. The, the first uh, the, the first pregnancy support banquet I attended in Pagosa when I got there had a group of men who felt guilt over allowing uh, an abortion to take place with uh, their girlfriend, wife, whatever. Um, and they're out there talking, and, and my initial thought as a Lutheran as I listened to this is, they still feel guilty. They need confession and absolution. Like, they need to hear their Like, they need someone to stand in front of them and say, your sins really are forgiven you. Because you can tell they didn't really believe it. Like, they really struggled with it. Um, related to that too is people have been sinned against um, we often only call it guilt but what do they often suffer from <coughs> it's a word we don't use a lot in our culture anymore Remorse. Shame. shame someone who's been sinned against often suffers great shame because of what's been done to them and that doesn't need repentance per se what, what they need to do is be comforted with uh, the gospel that um because sometimes with some sins against others, they can feel then themselves like they've, they're filthy or awful or whatever. And so shame for them is weighing heavily on them. And they think that they've done something wrong and they need to be comforted with the gospel that, that they, first of all, they didn't do anything wrong. It was, they were sinned against, but also then that Jesus loves them and that 
he is restoring them and helping them and, and with them. Um, so there's those kind of two, right? The one person maybe has guilt because they did something. Sometimes people have shame because they've been sinned against in such a horrible way that they bear that. And they need help getting over the shame of it. Um, shame can be a good thing. Um, our church fathers talk about this. The Lutheran fathers talk about this in regards uh, to the idea that what shame does is we're concerned about what others think. And that can be a good thing. There's no shame in our culture, and look, look what we have. Like having a sense of uh, God disapproves of this, my parents disapprove of this, my neighbors disapprove of this, it'd be shameful to do this. That's an okay thing um, to understand that. But when someone has shame for something they did not do but that was done to them, it's an entirely different thing. That's an entirely different thing. And they need help and recovery, and they need to understand that, that God is not against them because of what's happened to them. They may even feel like God's abandoned them for letting it happen to them. That's a whole different discussion with them. But they can feel like it's their fault. Or they can feel like they deserved it, or whatever. Shame can come in all kinds of forms. Um, and it's very closely related to this because they still need to know that in Christ... They're forgiven in Christ, uh, that, that he covers even all their shame. Um, <clears throat> all right. So that's me his final por- points and have um, a brief discussion on it. Uh, so we need a humble heart that acknowledges its great debt of sin against God. We need a believing heart, a heart that relies on God's grace, and a forgiving heart that is always ready to forgive others. All right, so where do we get such a heart? Because this isn't something you're just going to be like, if I really try hard, I'm going to have a humble, believing, forgiving heart. I'm going to try a little harder today to have a humble, believing, forgiving heart. Where do you get such a heart? No comment right here, mate. She goes from a transplant. Yeah, no, exactly, right? Uh, That's exactly what we all get. Yeah. I mean, Ezekiel says, right, your heart of stone is removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. It is a heart transplant. It only comes through the gospel. Like, we can be told to forgive by the law, or even people naively think, like, love your neighbor sounds like a really nice thing. Until you actually, like, if you go through, like, this, and you start looking about what it means to love your neighbor, you're like, oh, uh, I wasn't so hot on loving my neighbor. Uh, I kind of, kind of feel miserably at that. Right? It sounds nice. So does forgiving others. kind of sounds nice. But then when you go to do it, it can be quite difficult because of our sinful flesh, our own struggles against sin, and the only thing that can give us those things of forgiving heart is the gospel. It's only, it's only the gospel that can change our hearts so that we can actually forgive others the way Christ forgave us. Right? Again, the, the, the mode of the Bible, the picture is, it flows from God through me to others. Right? If I'm not receiving it from God, I can't really, I'm not really going to be forgiving others at all. Um... Uh, we need a heart transplant. We need a, a change of heart so that we can actually forgive and do good to others as God has called us to. <clears throat> Apart from that, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. So when Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts, that, I think when everyone hears that, we're all kind of like, oh, I'm in trouble. This, this is hard. 
Uh, right? Because it shows us that we're not as forgiving. Maybe it's even the, someone who thinks they're really forgiving. You hear that and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Have I really forgiven? Uh, but Jesus' point isn't go try hard to forgive. Um, if you don't have forgiveness from him, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. Unless Jesus changes your hearts, the kind of forgiveness he's talking about cannot and will not take place. Um, that doesn't mean that people who aren't Christians can't like forgive each other in some kind of way, but uh, the kind of forgiveness where you have a chaplain go in to deal with Nazis comes from a Christian hearts. Right? If you remember, um, when was this? I don't remember how many years ago. I'm going to say five. I'm just making up a number. Five years ago, um, there was that bombing at the, Pakistan, uh, the, the church in um, Ethiopia, like right around Holy Week. I think it was Palm Sunday. The next day, the Ethiopian Christians were out in the streets praying for and forgiving the people who had done it. Like, it's mind-blowing. Over in various countries where ISIS is very active, a lot, of, a lot of the ISIS members have converted to Christianity. One of the ways they've converted is they're left on the battlefield to die by their fellow ISIS members because they're just like, too bad for you. Just bleed out and die. We don't have time for this. And the Christians, who they just attacked, come and take them and heal them up and, and bless them. And they convert to Christianity because they're like, who loves and forgives like this? never seen anything like it before um could you do that if you didn't have your heart transplanted from jesus i don't see how you would the person that just came through and wrecked your village and killed your friends you could actually go and like patch them up but you can't do that apart from the, the love of christ because because your sinful flesh is like just don't bleed out that's what they deserve okay maybe just my sinful flesh maybe you'll your simple question is better than mine. <laughs> That'll be my first reaction. Right? It's Jonah's struggle. The reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because the Syrians are bloodthirsty, awful people who he knew what they would do to God's people. And he's like, I'd rather have them all go to hell than have them repent. Because they don't deserve to be forgiven. That was Jonah's thoughts. So the book of Jonah ends with a question. Because we're all supposed to contemplate and wonder, how would I have treated the Assyrians? Right? The Lord rebukes Jonah and says, you have no right to be angry. I created them. I made the city. I made the animals in the city. I care about this place. And Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to go. I knew you were long-suffering. I knew you would forgive. I knew you were patient. That's why I didn't want to go. And the Lord's so patient that he puts up with Jonah. <laughs> He was up with Jonah yelling in his face and uh, rebuking, rebuking him for being loving and merciful. And he still, he sits with Jonah and says, Jonah, really think about this. Do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah says, so angry that I, I'm going to die. He goes, at the end of the book is Jonah sitting on the hill waiting for God to change his mind and obliterate the city. Because he's so angry. We would do the same if it wasn't for Christ changing our hearts. Jonah's a weird book, too, because, right, the, the pagans throughout the book make better confessions than Jonah because their hearts has been changed. The pagans on the boat make a better confession. The pagans of Nineveh make a better confession because their hearts has been changed 
by the word of the Lord's. So too for us, when our heart's been changed, we can actually forgive. Not that it's going to be easy, not that we won't struggle because we still have our sinful flesh, but we can actually do it. And when we're struggling, we can pray to God and plead with him to change our hearts, to help us to forgive, to help us not to demand our pound of flesh, to help us actually do what Jesus has called us to do, even as we struggle to do it. And we can know that his forgiveness is still there for us as we struggle and as we don't forgive as we ought. We have to live in that forgiveness. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Um, as part of this, uh, there comes a point where I know we're talking about forgiving those who sin against us, just verbally praying about it. The part where we actually go to the person who grievously harmed us and actually with words tell them that um, I forgive you. Um, <coughs> is that in every situation? Or how, how do you discern when yeah. Um. I don't think you always have to do that. It's not even always possible, right? For a variety of reasons. Um, at times, it, I think it is not only appropriate, but probably something you, we should do, right? But that's gonna vary from case to case. Like, I, I would hesitate to make any kind of general statement about that because that's a really complex issue, right? So uh, if you didn't hear, you said, what, what about when you actually have to go to the person and, and say, I forgive you, do you always have to do that? And that, that's what I'm responding to is, I don't think necessarily so always. Um, and again, it may not even be possible for a variety of reasons too. Uh, so uh, it can be good if you're able to, but I don't think it's always required. I, I need to be really careful. I don't, I'm gonna be general just because that's a complex issue on a case by case basis. I don't wanna like, again, I wanna find someone's conscience like you have to do this because it may not be possible or feasible or a good thing to do, perhaps, pay on the situation. Um, Plus, you also have the fact that they may not believe that they sinned against you. And then, so you're just facing it again. If they, if they don't accept your forgiveness, well, what are you talking about? I never did anything. So. Yeah. Um, then that can even get more complex because then we have Matthew 18 as well about someone sins against you and you go to them. And they refuse to repent, and you bring it to the church. All, all of those kind of things. If you're dealing with Christians, right? Um, that can even get more complex of, of an issue. Um, I mean, I've I've had people that I've had to on on my own forgive, but there was no opportunity to ever go talk to the person, right? Um, or even I would never even see them again, or whatever, you know. Um, and so that can happen too. Or someone does something horrible to you, and you, you'll never see them again. Um, sometimes it can be because they end up in jail, you know, um, or whatever. So there, there are times for that, um, but there are where you may not be able to. And um, I think we should feel bound. Uh, take it on a case by case basis, and if you don't know, you would seek pastoral counsel on that like specific, you know, situation and get guidance on it. Ken, could you talk about? Uh be uh, forgiving, but at the same time demanding justice. You kind of touched on a little bit, I think, there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so if, <clears throat> if someone murders uh, my, a loved one, it's, 
it's completely okay for me to one on the one hand say, um, I forgive them and get to the point where I can forgive them. And on the other hand, um, tell the police like, yeah, you need to be prosecuted, right? I mean, because when we talk about the kingdom of the left, kingdom of the right hand, right? There, there are in the world consequences for those things. Now there could be advantages where mercy triumphs over that. So for example, um, there's a movie called The River Thief, which is made by a Christian. And in, in that movie, uh, a young man steals this older man's car. And the older man catches him doing it and just gives him the car. Did he have to do that? No. Could he have called the cops on the kid? Yes. There are times, I just uh, answered an email question about this to, to someone on uh, Matthew 119. They were saying that Joseph couldn't be a just and righteous man because he didn't have Mary stoned to death. That's what the law says. That if he thought she committed adultery and was pregnant, he should have had her stoned to death. My answer was, being merciful doesn't mean he's going against the law. He showed mercy. That was part of being a just and righteous man. He was merciful. Just like Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, right? Did the law say she should be stoned to death? Yes. What did Jesus do? He showed mercy. Like literally, (laughs) our entire Christian life is built on the fact that God was merciful and didn't just follow through on the full extent of the law for our punishment. So are there times where you could let someone off you know, what if they come, they're starving, and you run a store, and they steal a bunch of food from your store, and instead of putting them in jail, you give them more food? Would that be an okay thing to do? Yes, because you're showing mercy. Um, so there are times when maybe you don't follow through on the justice part of it, um, because you're going to be merciful and loving, but there are other times when uh, the justice part may be not only what's best for them, uh, but what's best for society as well, you know? If I, if, I don't, if I don't tell the police this person murdered my loved one and then they go murder someone else, that's pretty awful on multiple levels, right? Um, so, yeah. So again, there, there can be ways where you don't have to administer justice or demand justice. Um, there are other times when it's appropriate, and wisdom will have to be, you know, uh, your guide for that. Yes? One thing to always remember is nothing Not only to affect that person, but whoever else that might be 
Oh, absolutely. There's like not forgiving others can lead to bitterness and anger and hatred and all kinds of horrific consequences for ourselves, uh, and it will easily destroy a relationship. Uh, there are times I should add to that. I think that's that's, that's well said. Uh, there are times when, because of what's been done, the relationship cannot and will not be healed. You know, um, and that's that's reality too. Sometimes of sin, a consequence of it is that not all relationships are going to be healed. Even if we forgive them, it doesn't mean, right, the relationship can be restored. Um, at the very least, uh, to what it once was, right? Um, other times it can be, thanks be to God. Sometimes in this fallen sinful world, it does not happen. Um, and that's a reality we face too. Let's close in prayer. Don't forget about the picture afterwards for those um, that need to get a picture. Oh, Lord God, and Father, we thank you for the gift of forgiveness. We ask, O oh Lord, that you'd give us humble, believing, and forgiving hearts. May we receive your forgiveness joyfully even this day. May we share that forgiveness with others who have seen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.